Well, good morning, and as we sing, I suspect that some of us begin to imagine. Take your Bibles, turn with me as we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians 15, a remarkable uh, resurrection chapter to end this remarkable book. Not quite end. Page 934, if you're using our Bibles here. I'm guessing that uh, for many of us, the, the truth about the rapture, Christ coming back for us, is not new uh, to you. Uh, but to some, it will be. It'll be new or nearly new. It certainly is pretty incredible. Um, you maybe have seen movies or, or books about Christians suddenly disappearing from the earth. And, it, and it, indeed, it's just absolutely incredible to think that God would interrupt life on earth in such a radical way. So if the world thinks that that's a crazy idea, I really get it. It's pretty phenomenal. But really, isn't anything about Jesus Christ being God in the flesh and Jesus Christ being the only way to eternal life in heaven, isn't all of that just absolutely miraculous and stupendous and and crazy if you're thinking only from a human, you know, horizontal perspective that only, only thing real is what you can see or touch or whatever. Um, our previous passage, verses 35 to 49, has already taught us that we as believers in Christ will one day have a new resurrection body and that that new resurrection body is a physical, literal, touchable relational body and, and existence in the new heavens and, and the new earth. In fact, it compared us uh, to, to like you put a seed in the ground and it seems dead, but it comes to new life. And likewise, we plant our bodies, so to speak, when we bury them. But that body is going to be transformed and resurrected. And in fact, it's going to be like the body that Jesus had when he was resurrected and appeared during those several weeks after his resurrection. Uh, verse 49, where we left off, just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, that's a reference to Adam, we look like Adam, so we shall also bear the likeness of the man from heaven, Jesus. So we're going to have a new body, perfect, imperishable, much like Christ had and has now in heaven. And so that where Paul uh, picks it up now in verse 50, where we start today, he's connecting that reality to each of us sitting, sitting here today. Really, this is such a, a pertinent, relevant part of, of Scripture and of prophetic Scripture because it's not just something about something that happened long ago or something that will happen, you know, like in the millennium, many years from... It's, it's a, this, we are all in these verses that we study today. If you're a believer in Christ, you are in these verses. It picks it up in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, this body is perishable, and uh, you can't take it to heaven with you. Flesh and blood is the body you have now, the one you pulled out of bed, you clothed it, you fed it, you drove it to church. The body as it is will not survive in heaven. Flesh and blood, the, the body, everybody has blood, right? Circulating, it keeps all the systems alive. And when the blood stops flowing, life ends, the body dies. Leviticus 17.11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And that's true. Every biology book would, would confirm the life of the flesh is in the blood. So when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, maybe it rings a little bit of a bell of a passage we looked at about the body of Jesus Christ when he was resurrected because he said that he had flesh and bones. Flesh and bones. It's, it's a review, a passage we looked at. 
He said to them, this is Jesus talking to the disciples on resurrection day, that Sunday evening he, went, he appeared in the room where the disciples were hiding. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your mind? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. I'm not a ghost. As you see, I have. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. The resurrected Jesus in his new body. Touch. I'm not a ghost. He, he ate flesh and bones he had. This verse says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I just have to think there is something a little bit different. You know, do we understand all this perfectly? No, we have to always come to prophetic scripture with a little sense of humility, like, I think it's this. But it seems that somehow the resurrection body has some immortal, imperishable properties that are dissimilar, in other words, no blood, but yet it's so similar that you can actually be touched and felt and, and, and eat. just seems flesh and bones and flesh and blood are, are distinct distinctions. Because regardless, we cannot take a perishable, perishable body to heaven in a perishable state. Which is a great segue then to what he's going to describe now that we know of as the rapture resurrection event. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So we won't all die, sleep, metaphor of death, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and then A, the dead will be raised imperishable, and B, we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal, that which can die, with immortality, that which cannot die. Um, this is the rapture, resurrection. I like to call the rapture slash resurrection because both things happen. You will notice if you looked at just this verse, it does not describe Jesus specifically coming back to earth, right? But it's exactly the same event that uh, uh, Pastor Nate read about that from 1 Thessalonians. We'll, we'll go there later this morning. It's what he taught everywhere, and obviously he's taught the rapture already to these Corinthians. What he's emphasizing in this passage is not the rapture part, but the resurrection part. That the dead will be raised, and then what about those who are alive when this event happens? So verses 35 to 39 last week described how the dead will be raised and kind of what the new body is like and what it's not like. So that's about the dead being raised. But he says, i got to tell you something. When this happens, when this resurrection event happens, that's also when there are, the believers are going to be living at that moment. What happens to their body? Because their body can't inherit the imperishable, immortal environment of heaven either. And so Paul's answering that question to say that Christians who are alive at that moment also need a new body. We're not dressed for heaven yet. And we can't go there in a body with, that has arthritis and, and, and cancer cells and replaced parts. <laughs> this, we're not dressed for heaven. It has to be changed. We, verse, verse 51 and verse 52 both say that we, referring to those alive at that moment, we will be changed, not replaced. This body is not completely replaced. You saw that last week. It's this body transformed. That's why the tomb was empty. Jesus' existing body that he had for those 30-some years was the one that was resurrected and transformed. All of this is new truth. That's what the word mystery means. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Mystery kind of makes us think like it's kind of vague, unknowable, or spooky or something. But the word mystery simply means new truth that had not been previously revealed. If, if, if you don't know something and you do, some, do know something, if, if you do a card trick for me, I'll fall for it every time. I won't know how you did it. I'll be amazed, but then you can show me how you did it. Now this mystery to me is now a revealed mystery. Oh, I see how you did that. And Paul is saying basically, this is new truth. You won't find this in the Old Testament. You don't, you don't find a description of, of, of First of all, you don't even find the church in the Old Testament. It's the, the people of God that came to Israel and, and, and they came to faith through 
through Israel and the knowledge of the truth. The church is a new thing. The church is part of what Paul revealed. Elsewhere, he says that that was a mystery, Jew and Gentile together because of faith in Christ. So you don't find the church in the Old Testament. You don't find the rapture in the Old Testament. But you do find something remarkably similar to the rapture in the Old Testament two different times because there were two godly men who similarly went to heaven without dying. And that's what the rapture is, right? Going to heaven without dying. Those two people are Enoch and Elijah. Enoch in Genesis 5, 24, in a list of, of you know, how long this person lived and when he died and how long this person lived and when he died, you come to Enoch and, and some, something's different. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him or took him away. Everybody else in the list died, not Enoch. God took him away. And if that wasn't convincing enough, fast forward through Israel's history to the stories of Elijah and Elisha. Remember, Elijah was the the, uh, older prophet who mentored Elisha to take his place. So, As they, Elijah and Elisha, were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And he's gone. Uh, There is precedence for the rapture. Uh, It's like God was even showing us a little bit of a preview, perhaps. I, I can do what I want. And if I want someone to skip death, I can do that. And we come to our passage and we find out there'll be a whole globe full of believers at some moment who are going to skip death. Wouldn't that be great? You see, Paul is entrusted with new information as part of his apostolic role and gift. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, he describes how he went up to the third heaven we're not totally sure what the third heaven is. He said, Paul even said, I don't know if, if I was in the body or outside of the body, but I was in the third heaven and I saw things that are inexpressible. So we know there has been times where Paul in some remarkable way is being given new truth. And, and he says, this I can tell you about. But as Paul writes about this, you can just imagine Paul is writing about this event with a little bit more of a vertical, heavenly perspective, whereas we have more the horizontal view, boy, we're on earth, we're going to go up here, and and, and it's like Paul has in some sense been there in a remarkable, unique way, and he knows this, that God can interrupt history. God can interrupt history. This new revelation is that God is going to interrupt what seems to just go on and on and on and on in human history. God can interrupt it anytime he wants to. Peter taught the same. In the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised, ever since our ancestors died? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. This is the, the common secular viewpoint of uniformitarianism. It just, everything goes on just like it does. But they deliberately forget a key word. They willfully don't want to admit or know these things. What are those things? That long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. The first thing they'll try to deny is the creation of the world by divine word. But that's exactly how everything came to be. Because God himself created it. He created it in six days. And God alone would have the power to do that. But you got to first of all erase that. And that's exactly what is happening, right? Take out the, the, the creation uh, truth, and, and it seems like every other biblical truth falls with it. So they deny that. And verse 6, by these waters, the waters with it, with, that, that are naturally on the, or supernaturally created on the earth, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. The flood. So Genesis 1, the creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and Genesis 6, the flood are crucial examples of just how God has already shown his ability to interrupt history. And he can do it again. So when we read of the rapture, there's nothing that remarkable, you could say, in the power of God. 
In fact, throughout human history, there have been repeated ways in which God has interrupted histories. And I think one of the best ways to understand them is, is as dispensations. Dispensations. Now, I know that's a complicating, that's a complicated sounding word. It really isn't. It just means there have been different ways in which God has operated with mankind on earth. And what he's really seemingly doing is testing man and showing himself to be glorified in each of these sequential ways. In fact, the seven dispensations, if we're right about dividing it about like that, is for me just so simple. It just basically is outlining Bible history, outlining human history according to the Bible. This, this is the history of the world. It's basically God created it, and someday this earth as we know it will, will end and be recreated to a new heavens and a new earth and will continue on forever and we'll, we'll live on the new heavens and new earth. So there are seasons in which God did things a little bit differently. In each case, man is tested and God triumphs and God is to deserve glory for the way he triumphed in spite of the fact that man sinned. So the test is always, will mankind Obey God in different conditions, and in every condition, the answer was no. We fail, we fail, we fail, we sin. But will God show his grace in each of these different conditions? Absolutely yes. The, 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 the way of un- dispensations or dispensationalism does not teach in any way different ways of salvation. There's only been one way of salvation. Everybody is saved through faith in Christ, either they, before the cross or after the cross, but we're saved through the cross. And there is grace in each of these eras of time. The first one, just kind of giving a fast forward through uh, world history according to the Bible. Adam and Eve are created, and they, don't, they, they are created innocent, you could say. They had not yet sinned, but in some span of time, we don't know how long, eventually they did sin. Mankind is shown as a failure. They sinned, and mankind has fallen. Sin entered the world, and so therefore everybody else born since has been born in sin. Did God show his grace? Absolutely. Because who provided the skins to cover Adam and Eve? God did the first sacrifice, indicating that that sin brings death, and God, by his grace, allows them to live on. The next era might be called conscience, because, okay, let's just see. Now man knows about sin. Will they obey God? Of course they didn't. They became so corrupt that God says, I'm going to destroy this earth. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and so there was still grace to be, to be given to mankind through Noah, and God, in a sense, starts over with humanity. Into an era sometimes called human government, because, of course, government will solve the problem, right? But what happened in chapters 6 to 11 is you find that mankind tried to centralize everything, kind of like a one-world government, and they built this tower and said, we're going to ascend into heavens and make a name for ourselves. And God said, that's not my plan at all, because my plan was, when I created you, that you should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, not centralize, fill the earth. And so he gave them different languages, and he spread them out all over the world. By the way, there's copies of this at the back, uh, if you want to pick this up later. I see somebody writing stuff down. Uh, Tower of Babel, then, was a time of judgment and yet a time of grace for God to dispense and disperse those languages. God then said, I'm going to pick a people, and out of this people, I'm going to uh, choose one person, and I'm going to bless the world. Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis, I'm going to bless you, and he did. I'm going to make you a great nation, and indeed Israel was. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you, and he has. It's the person of Jesus who came from the Jew, as a Jew, came from uh, a descendant of of Abraham. And in fact, whoever blesses you, Abraham, I'm going to bless. Important thing for us to remember in days as we watch the back and forth of Israel being involved in conflicts and wars and people hating them or whatever, just very, very helpful. Go back to Genesis 12. He makes a great nation, this great nation, though, of course, they are still sinners. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Eventually, God spares them from a famine by taking them to Egypt, delivers them, from, delivers them through Egypt. Eventually, though, as they grew to a nation of two million people from 70 that went to Egypt, he had to deliver them from Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, showed his grace, and said, okay, I'm going to give you the promised land, and in the promised land, you're going to need instructions about how to live. 
and I've, got you, I've given you priests, and you can, you can then uh, know my law. And he just wrote it all out. He says, this is everything you should be doing. And so, of course, with everything specified, people all obeyed, right? No, because mankind always sins. And yet God showed his grace in those who would bring the sacrifices and trusting that God would someday bring the lamb who would pay for our sins. God showed his grace in spite of the failure of those living under the law. But then everything was set in God's plan and God's stage uh, that, that in the fullness of time God sent forth his own son through a woman born under the law and he sent Jesus. And so Jesus Christ became the hinge of history and, and died on the cross. The Lamb of God, Passover Lamb, was, was, finally, was finally there. And he paid off the sin debt of all those who had put their faith in him before. And he prepaid the debit card that all of us would rest on as we put our faith in Christ now. And so he, he died on the cross. He rose again. And he launched a yet another dispensation. Things are different. Nobody brought, nobody brought a, a sheep or a cow to be, you know, to be sacrificed this morning in a stock rack on your pickup. I don't see any of that. So something, something's different, right? A different dispensation. We're in the church age. We're in the age of grace. And we, we are celebrating. And surely, if God has given, if God has given full information, a full scripture, everybody in the world would follow Christ then, right? Well, that's not working out really well either because people are denying the scripture and they're denying Christ. And, and so, no, th- that didn't solve it either. And yet, God's building his church and God's being glorified and God's showing his grace. We're examples of it here this morning. X is November 26, 2023. And so here we are. And so we, we, we would want to see you know, God's plan has been unfolded through scripture. So what's next? Well, what's next is what we're reading. What's next is the rapture resurrection event. I like to draw it this way because we're going to be caught up. We're going up to meet the Lord in the air who comes down to get us. We'll see that as we uh, take another look at 1 Thessalonians. And after that, there's a little transitionary time of trouble. Oh, it's actually a big transitionary time of trouble, but it's, it's only seven years long, but it, it, it occupies almost the entire book of Revelation. And at the end of that time, Jesus Christ is going to come, not for the church, but rather coming down to the Mount of Olives in, in judgment. And then that will usher in the final dispensation, which is the millennium. Revelation chapter 20, there's a thousand-year literal time on earth when the conditions are even better in terms of God's revelation than it is now, because Jesus Christ will actually be enthroned in Jerusalem, surely Everybody would follow then. Satan's going to be bound. Surely everybody will follow Christ then. But when Satan's released at the very end of the millennium, it says that there's this mass of people who had been born during the millennium who are going to follow Satan, and fire will come down and consume them, and there will be a final judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment. And then everything on earth is over, and God can recreate the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Of course, if you're a believer in Christ, you find where you're living right now. You see X marks the spot, and we are waiting for this next event, the rapture, in which we'll be either taken literally physically, or if those who have died as believers now will be taken up to be with him. So, all of human history, things don't always stay the same. Don't be surprised that God would interrupt history yet again. So, when is the rapture? I don't know. We're supposed to live expecting it anytime. Anytime. What day, what decade, what year, what century, we don't know. When the two world wars took place, many people thought, surely we're in the tribulation, and surely you know, Hitler's the Antichrist or something. I guess not, and we best not guess. We need to be ready for any moment because, what did verse 52 say? We will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The twinkling of an eye is, is, is probably an expression meaning in a blink. How long does it take you to blink? That's how fast it'll be. Um, 
Perhaps there's this trumpet call just before. Then flash, we're gone. If you slow down the video of that instantaneous event, though, what you would see in verse 52 is that, A, the dead will be raised imperishable. There's a resurrection. And, he repeats it, we will be changed. So, the dead first are going to be resurrected. We have to also get that same upgraded resurrection eternal body. And so the great news is that it's possible that in this room will be some of us who will never experience death. But it'll be more like Elijah or Enoch and who suddenly, suddenly we, we were not here, we're there. <laughs> but there had to be a transformation of that body in a flash. So we compare this passage to what uh, Nate read earlier from 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Recognize the trumpet? It's going to be noisy. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He was comforting those who were grieving uh, some believers who had died. And they said, did they, did they miss out on the rapture? He says, no, they didn't. You're going to be together with them again. The dead in Christ raised first, just as we see in verse 52 of our passage. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them. That's where we will be changed. So the emphasis of Thessalonians, Paul is just saying, we're going to be going up. Recognize the trumpet, recognize the resurrection, and we're going to be caught up. That's the rapture word, caught up. Some have said, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible, and that's true. Technically, in our English Bible, it's not there. But it's not true in that this actually is the word for rapture, uh, when the Bible is translated into Latin, the word rapturo is the name that stuck for this truth. So it really there, caught up, is the rapture uh, word. And in the air, that's why the, this, this is unique and different from Christ's return in judgment after the tribulation, because in this one, we are being delivered. It's, it's coming, he's coming for the church. He doesn't come all the way to the ground. We rise to meet him, literally. It's a, we meet him in the air. When the Bible makes literal sense, Seek no other sense. So, when you grieve for a loved one who has died in Christ as a believer, when life gets difficult, when you're fearful and worried because this world and its condition in so many ways, we're not supposed to be fearful or worried. We're supposed to be encouraged because we're one day closer to God interrupting the world to come and send Christ to get his church. A, a, a significant part of this passage, as well as 1 Thessalonians, is that Paul keeps using the personal pronoun we. We who are alive and remain. Here, we will be changed. Why, why do you say we and not they who? We who, not they who. <laughs> he says we because he expected to be part of it. Because the way God has revealed this next piece of history is that he, now he knew there had to be intervening events. It's been 2,000 years since this was written, right? He knew that, but he made sure that we wouldn't know of anything that would have to happen before this rapture, resurrection event. So he could live, Paul would live, expecting it imminently. Imminently means at any time. So Paul surely thought it was, was him too. When he's writing to the Thessalonians, he says, hey, we're probably, it hasn't happened yet. It's 20 years later. It hasn't happened yet, but it could happen any time. And you know where we're supposed to live today? Like it could happen any day. Um, I intend to finish this message, but I'm not sure I will. The worship team is ready to come up to sing the last song. They might not. We're supposed to live with that kind of expectation.
This understanding of, a, of these Bible passages is what's called by some the pre-tribulation view. I can accept that. That's a good term for it because uh, it's understanding that there is a literal seven-year period of time Book of Revelation, most of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 19, are all about that time. You're reading about the seven-year period of time when you open up Revelation for the most part. This happens before that. We won't be on earth for that if we're understanding Scripture uh, correctly. Pre-tribulation. Uh, other views, you may have heard terms like uh, mid-tribulation view or the post-tribulation view. There's a pre-wrath tribulation view, kind of like in the middle of the last half, and so there's others who understand it differently, but, but to me there's a kind of a simplicity that rings true when you think if, if indeed the rapture is imminent, it could happen at any time. If, if, if Paul was serious, it could have been him. If it could be today, that means it's before the tribulation because we're not in the tribulation. So pre-tribulation. So I, 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 again, I always... I feel like the truth of doctrines and interpretation are best understood uh, if, if they make sense simply. Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, talking to his disciples, said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. So he's saying to the disciples, I am going to leave you. That's what the like John chapter 13 through 17 is all about. I'm going to be leaving. So he's predicting his ascension. I'm leaving. He says, then I'm going to come back. That's the rapture. So Jesus predicted the rapture. I'm leaving. I'm going to come back. While I'm gone, I'm going to be preparing the place for you. Next day, he was crucified. Three days later, he arose. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven. He had just ascended to heaven, literally, physically, Went up into the air, it says, into the clouds, and there were two angels there. And they said to the disciples, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So, first of all, Jesus promised he's coming back, and then the disciples are told by the angels, the promise is still valid, everything's on schedule. Jesus said he's going to leave, he left, he's going to come back, just like he said he would. Everything's on schedule. But a couple decades passed, and Paul was teaching this everywhere he went, and including Thessalonica. And some of the people were saying, but if Jesus is coming back, what about our, you know, we're having funerals here for our, our, our Christian friends and family, and, and, and are they missing out on the rapture? And he says, oh, no, they're not missing out at all. Because the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be at the Lord forever, so comfort each other. Makes sense? He says, yeah, oh, okay. So he's emphasizing the Thessalonians. He, he's, he's emphasizing the, the rapture. And, and then we come to our passage, and he's emphasizing. And so how do people who are alive get to heaven with this body? He says, you don't. You, you get a new body. So there are exceptions to the resurrection reality, and that is those who are alive when Christ comes back will get the new body instantaneously, automatically. But regardless, Paul says, here's the, here's the overriding point, verse 53, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. He uses actually a clothing word to put on, or you've got to change clothes uh, to go to heaven. If you're, if you're a character in a play you know, in high school or something and you... Sometimes between scenes, you have to do a quick costume change. If you're, if you're cast as, the, as the, the, the peasant girl who becomes a, uh, the queen, you, know, you, gotta, you can't be wearing your burlap peasant dress uh, when you come to the queen scene. So there's going to be this, this transformation, new clothes that are part of this resurrection rapture event. Now, it raises studying prophecy in Scripture gives us truth always raises more questions and one question that often comes up is so if we're if somebody dies now and they're not raised until the rapture what condition are we in between death as a believer and resurrection at the rapture not much is said about that 
frankly, I don't think we can, can know that very well. Some have, have, um, have wondered if there is some sort of intermediate body, if, if, if as human souls we must have bodies, is there an intermediate body that we exist with in heaven until the rapture and the transformation of this body? One uh, passage suggested for that, Revelation 6 talks about the souls of the martyrs, those who died as believers during the tribulation, and it says they are dressed with white robes. If that is meant to be literal, and we often try to take things literally if it's not obvious that they're not, so that's a possibility. But here's what we do know. First of all, we've got to trust a lot of things to God's sovereign wisdom that we're not able to understand, right? But we do know from 2 Corinthians 5.8 that Paul said about his own possible death, he said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know there's no purgatory, that sins still need to be punished, that violates every doctrine about salvation, first of all. And there is no soul sleep, as some have posited, that, uh, you know, like there's some kind, you just kind of go into a, uh, a stage or something. There's no soul. No, we are instantly with the Lord. So we can be very confident that the moment of death, we are with the Lord, and whether that's with an intermediate body or in a, uh, a spirit uh, sense, we, we don't know. But uh, Paul's, actually that next verse in Second Corinthians, Paul says, we, we're either at home in this body or away from it, so we can be away from this body and there's no problem. But be encouraged. You're going to be clothed in a new body. Pain will be gone instantly. Disability will become superability. Dementia will become knowing everything fully. Not only will you not die, you will not fear death. You will no longer calculate about how long your life expectancy is compared to your present age. You will no longer sorrow for those who have died, nor will you sorrow fearing the grief of those you might leave behind. Because, verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Um, two Old Testament clips or quotes. It doesn't, verses 54 and 55 don't, don't add any doctrinal truth. It's kind of like Paul's doing a little victory dance over death. It's like a boxer, just won a match and he's pumping his fist. Gordon Fee, a Bible scholar, paraphrased Paul this way. Take that, death. You've lost both your victory and your sting. No more can death tyrannize because it has been swallowed up by resurrection. And so he, he gives these two quotes, one from Isaiah, one from Hosea, to show clearly that this resurrection is, is not a new thing to God. It always was in his plan. The first quote from Isaiah, the uh, first line of this verse, he will swallow up death forever. That's what, he's, that's what he's referring to. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, also quoted in Revelation 21. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Resurrection's a, a real thing. Hosea, this, again, this is written 700 years before Jesus. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And here's the quote. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? It's like, you got no answer, death, do you? It's, it's like when Paul was getting this new revelation about the rapture, resurrection, he suddenly was connecting the dots to his Old Testament knowledge. That was his scripture, right? So he knew his Old Testament. And by the way, a little parenthesis. It's why you need to read the prophets too. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. I know if, you, so if you're reading the Bible, hopefully daily. And so don't, don't just be in the New Testament and just read Proverbs or something that's really clear. Occasionally plow through the prophets. Even if you don't know exactly what's going on, just scan, get through it to give you the, the impression that 
God is in control of everything. He's got the whole world in his hands. And, and uh, he's not frantic like so many Christians are. He, he, God never wrings his hands. He just turns the page. And he says, next. So there's a point at which the sting of death will be gone, he says. It's a poison term from the insect world. He says that's going to be permanently neutralized. I wonder if, as Paul is writing this, this is, this, 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 this is, is like a crescendo of this amazing chapter. Are, are there tears, as Paul writes, because he's tired of death and, funer- death and funerals and grief too. As he celebrates, I, 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 you know, while we're singing, I can only imagine, could, do you suppose God himself is just getting excited for the conclusion of this amazing plan he had for the world when death will be over? As, he, as Paul moves on, he, he gives us a little quick doctrinal lesson about sin and death in light of victory over death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But then he bursts into praise. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I thought it was great that this fell on Thanksgiving weekend. This is what you thank God for. Thanks be to God. Okay, the sting of death is sin. So, so it's like quoting Hosea's thing about sting of death. He says, let me dive a little deeper on that metaphor. What caused death? Sin. Adam's sin. By one man's sin into the world, death through sin. And the power of sin is the law, law in general, Old Testament uh, law, God's rules. Uh, God giving us specific laws and instructions and rules did not fix anything, didn't make people good. It actually exposed sin. It's like, it's like law gives sin its power. You're told a rule, don't cross this line, and don't you just feel like going like, it's like that? Does the Bible say you can't, you know, whatever, and we just put our line, put our foot right up to the line like a little kid sometimes? The world just lives that way. They, they trample over those lines of, of morality and, and ethics and honesty and all those kind of things all the time. And we as Christians, we struggle with the exact same lines because we still have the sin nature of this side of heaven with this old body. But that'll end too. Temptation will be gone. I think Paul takes a deep breath in the middle of verse, or between 56 and 7. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over what? Sin and death. Sin and death. Probably he means this in two ways. There's an obvious application here because he's just been talking about how uh, in heaven it'll all be perfect, right? So in heaven there'll be no rules or laws needed because the law of God will be written on our hearts and we'll be in perfect bodies that cannot sin in an environment where there is no sin and, and so laws are unnecessary. Kind of like when you're, you're, uh, you're trying to bring your child from immaturity to maturity, eventually you start dropping off rules till at some point you not my problem, right? You don't have any more rules. You give more rules up, up front. So there'll be a time when we'll be perfect, and, and so he's, he's got to be picturing heaven because that's what this is about. But it's interesting that when he writes verse 57, he does so in, that second line is in the present tense. That is, he says, thanks be to God who is giving us the victory, present tense. It's not a future tense who will give us the victory over sin and death. It's not just about then. But it's a present tense who is right now giving us victory over sin and death. How can that be? Well, the way it can be is that as a believer in Christ, you are spiritually alive already. And so we can begin to progressively gain victory over sin in the ways that the unbelieving world cannot. Earlier in in, uh, 
Corinthians, he said, the person with the spirit or spiritual man makes judgments or discernments about all things. How? We have the mind of Christ. So when you put your, the natural man does not even perceive the things of the spirit of God, that passage was saying in chapter two. But the spiritual one, and by the spiritual means someone who has the spirit, if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Now you can start to see life and understand life. You have like the mind of Christ. You see things, you see sin as a believer, you can see sin like Christ does. That changes your power to know that, oh, this is what destroys lives, this is, what, this is Satan's plan. You begin to just understand sin differently because you have the mind of Christ. And by the Spirit, you have power to no longer be just you know, dealing with sin in terms of, well, I don't want to face that consequence. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you no longer have to just live, you know, just corralled by consequences like someone who eventually goes to jail because finally just got to make the consequences worse and worse and worse and lock them up. But we don't have to live that way. We don't have to wait for consequences because we have the Spirit who frees us from that law or the, the rule basis. And so while we are not yet in heaven where we cannot sin, we begin to see sin and we see holiness and we're drawn to holiness because we have the mind of Christ and we have the Spirit who can give us power. And so we've got to lean into the power of the Spirit that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So there's a, there's a whole fresh new way to approach life as a believer, we can have spiritual victory because the Spirit is actually living inside of us and we are already spiritually alive and we are aliens here who will, <laughs> aliens on this earth who will have a, have a citizenship in heaven and we start to see the whole plan and with that plan and understanding, we begin to lean into the Spirit's power for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and progressively, progressively, we've got to be so patient with ourselves, with one another. But Paul's writing all this to a struggling, sinning church. This church has been in trouble in Corinthians, right? It's checking the list of this sin problem, this sin conflict, pride, immorality, it's all there. Paul kind of awakens their heart to see you can be living spiritually alive now. And he closes with saying in verse 58 then, and you can be living for a different purpose now. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because you're going to be in heaven someday, because you're spiritually alive, and because you have a different perspective of life entirely. First of all, I love that he calls them dear brothers. Because for all of their sin, he had, they had to be one of the most difficult churches he worked with. He's got a heart of love and grace, and his tone softens and says, Brothers, sisters, I've spoken this because I love you. And here's the bottom line. He tells them, you need doctrinal stability, number one. Doctrinal stability. Number two, you need to invest faithfully in service. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Stand firm seems to be a doctrinal expression. It's God's truth that will sustain you through the next trial, the next emotional struggle, the next diagnosis, the next fear, whatever. You know the truth. What truth? The most important truth is probably you know, where he began, chapter 15, the, the truth that I spoke to you about the good news of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose again. So don't, don't, don't let anybody move you off of that centerpiece of, of doctrinal truth Christ died for our sins and rose again. How can you have eternal life in heaven? What is the, what is the good news, verse 1, that saves you? Christ died for our sins and rose again. Don't, don't, don't add anything to that. Don't subtract anything from it. Don't taint it. Don't be distracted from it. Stand firm in the gospel, Christ crucified and risen. But what do we do? Just sit here waiting for that new body? No. Knowing all this truth, Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So, so knowing what we know about the future should absolutely immerse ourselves with a different vision of what we do with this tiny slice of time we have right now. So birth, death. 
eternity. So when you know what you have for eternity, what are you going to do with this little slice of life? Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Life's a snap and it's over, right? You get a blink of beauty and strength and then a brief battle with aging. And we're done. So what do you do now? Focus on what matters then. Chapters 12 through 14, all this trouble with spiritual gifts. Don't, don't get lost in that, in the jungle of what went wrong with our spiritual gifts. You have a spiritual gift. Read chapter 12, and you're a member of the body, and, and each one, you know, there's a hand, there's a, there's a foot, there's an eye, there's an ear, you know, and, and, and just, just, to, just to enjoy the worship that, whatever God does, maybe to encourage you in a couple hours you spend here just on a weekend, this, this doesn't even count in the week, is because dozens of people have used their spiritual gift. Dozens. So invest in, in the work of what is gospel focused? What, what, what will bring about people knowing about Christ? Your labor is not in vain. Chapter 15, uh, second verse says, make sure you don't believe in vain. To trust believing in the wrong thing. Put your trust in Christ alone. But now make sure that your labor is not in vain. If you, if you spend your life like the world that's going to a Christless judgment, no, you're somebody different. So your labor is not in vain. So. The exciting truth of the rapture is also a sobering truth because you want to make sure you're part of it. And if the trumpet were to sound yet today, the good news is that hundreds of thousands, I hope millions of people would rise from the dead and others being caught up together with them to meet the cloud, meet the Lord in the, in the air, and it, it'll be amazing. But there'll be others... If we're understanding the truth, right, there'll be others that are left behind to uh, be on the earth during that difficult tribulation age. So make sure you're part of the family of God by faith in Christ who died for our sins and rose again. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Verses 1 to 8 of this chapter, Christ died for our sins and rose again. Nothing more, nothing less. What are you trusting in? If you aren't for sure, that you're trusting in Christ and that you have eternal life in heaven. Make sure that today, this week, you would contact somebody, maybe here at church, Pastor Nader, myself, and I mentioned this last week too, just that that's our first purpose, that all would have access to the knowledge of the gospel to put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, and you would know you'd be part of this amazing event that's next on the, on, on the list, it seems, for God's plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your truth that uh, lies here in our pages day after day. May we become those people who not only know you, but seek to, as Savior, but know you more and more through your word. Help us to be uh, diligent. Uh, help us to be patient with ourselves, with what we don't understand, and just grow in our knowledge, grow in grace and knowledge of, of you and your salvation and your plan. We thank you for all you've told us that we can know. Thank you for all the things you've hidden from us that we couldn't handle. Uh, give us always, as we come to your word, a humility that we never act like we know at all, but uh, we would just simply act on that which we do know and be faithful to follow you in every way that you direct us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.